Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio Podcasts. I'm pleased to share a fireside discussion from the 2020 Craco Conference on the topic of misaligned incentives, physician perspectives on the integration of Craco. For more information about the Craco Conference, our editorials, podcasts, and webinars, please visit cracoevent.com. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. Suzanne, thank you for joining us here at Craco today. It's great to see you. Thanks for having me here. You know, I, I think the, the video helped to set up the introduction. Um, but Suzanne, you know, as, as we're, we're speaking today about this intersection of research and healthcare, I'm really excited to drill down into working as a provider. Um, but, you know, one thing I'd love to just begin with with this audience, um, they, some may not know you and some of your work in the field, but for years you've been a champion in terms of bringing women into the proper care settings for heart disease. And I wonder, Suzanne, can you help share some perspective with the audience in terms of the work and experiences you've had to date around women not being referred appropriately? And how have you helped to, to bridge that gap with education, information, and so on? You know, I, I appreciate the way you, you asked me this question because I'm not the researcher on the front lines doing the work, but I have been the clinician on the front lines bringing women in and educating them and empowering them and telling them the importance of research. And really, when I first started all of this, it was so long ago that there was no such thing as women and heart disease. But I was running a cardiac rehab center, and that was the beginning. And we really started seeing the diversity and disparities in care. And some of the early research was looking at women in cardiac rehab centers. And the women who went through these rehab programs actually did better than the men. But guess what? they were referred significantly less. I mean, at that time, about 13%. So I really was have been on this journey and have had this passion and mission to really educate women about getting involved in research and really getting the care that they need. I, I've been a spokesperson for Go Red for Women through the American Heart Association and have been really involved in this aspect of women's care. You know, I asked that question because, you know, first I want the audience to get to know you and some of the amazing work that you've done. But of course, it's also somewhat because we have a challenge in our industry in terms of having um, engagement that's equitable for patients to learn about research participation. And so I'm curious from your experiences in the field, are there strategies that you've seen and deployed successfully to help? women connect more in a more equitable way with resources for heart health that we can learn from and adapt from as we think about helping to drive appropriate referrals into clinical research studies and including more patients in research? That is such an interesting question with not a simple answer whatsoever, because part of the problem is this sort of implicit, intrinsic bias that exists when it has come to women's care. And the realities behind that has been a lot about the clinicians and the focus of the clinicians. I mean, when we look across the board, women are receiving less life-saving procedures. Women receive less medications and interventions after 
heart attacks, um, when they're hospitalized, they're being discharged with less of these life-saving medications. Prevention is not applied to women the same as men. So why is all of that going on? And that's the issue. It's about this bias. So how are we going to get women into research trials about cardiovascular disease when we're not even diagnosing them and treating them properly? So the first thing I'm going to say is that doctors have to learn how to listen. And there was a really interesting study that came out not too long ago that looked at the relationship between doctors and their patients. And there was really this the awareness that doctors looked at women and their weight and that their weight was an issue more than actually talking to them about the risk factors for heart disease. So how we look at our women patients and how doctors approach them needs to be standardized. You know, it, it's so simple. There, there's a, this understanding of, of women when they come to their physicians that they're not being looked at the same way, period, end of story, that they're not getting the same care, period of end of story. Like, how do you change that? And that's where operationalizing, systematizing things, that's when checklists become important. You know, we saw this in different aspects of healthcare, that when there was a checklist, people got the same amount of care because people didn't put their own bias into the care process. And I think we have to do something like that, that we don't get to listen to people and then in turn in, and then figure out what they're trying to say based on their words. We just listen to their words. So if someone comes in and says, I have chest pain, we don't get to say, oh, that's not really chest pain because I know women that look like her and that's never their heart. That's not okay. And so unless there's some sort of objectivity to how we analyze women, they're not going to even get the care. So how are they going to get into research? I want to make sure the audience knows, please uh, add your questions, add your experiences, add your voice to the conversation, use the chat feature. Uh, if you know me, you know there's nothing I love more than hearing from everyone that's out there right now. Um, Suzanne, how do you impact the checklist? What are the what's needed within a health system or otherwise for for the for the enterprise to be willing to add another box on the checklist and help try to drive different behaviors? I'm sure the leaders in those health systems have a lot of different demands about wanting to add X or add Y. How does women's health get prioritized? How does research participation get prioritized? You know, I think as the time has gone on and our healthcare systems have become systems and bureaucracies and doctors are seeing patients based on RBUs and, and not quality of care, um, I, I think that things have changed. They don't have time to listen. I had a patient come in, and by the way, I am in private practice now, um, I think primarily because of that reason. I, I found that I wanted to take care of people, and I'm not great at the checking those boxes. That's actually not my strongest point. But what I've learned is that when we have a system and we have women that are in that system, unless we create a flow for them to get the care they need, they're not going to. And I'm gonna use an example that happened just yesterday. I had a patient come to me for a second opinion. 
because she was at a doctor and complained of chest pain and shortness of breath and had a test and that test was she was told was normal and she was okay it was a coronary artery calcium score there was calcification in the artery but based on the number it was decided it was not obstructive and she was fine and when she was trying to get a better understanding well what do you mean i'm fine there's a calcium score and i'm still having pain even though you say i'm fine am i really fine he goes I just said you were fine, don't worry about it. Oh, by the way, take a statin and aspirin and I'll see you in six months. And she went home and cried because she thought she was gonna die. So that's a completely ineffective conversation. So what happens? How do you systematize this? Well, a lot of it's about education. And where do you drive your patients for their education? Do you actually give them information? This is what a calcium score means. This is what it means if you're a woman who's 60 years old with a calcium score of X number. And so the more that we have education on the back end, we can then use a flow chart to really sort of help our patients have an understanding of where they sit and where they lie if there's a lack of communication. And along with that flow chart needs to be the option of research. Guess what? There are other 60-year-old women just like you with calcium scores that are just like this. And there's a research trial running at X place. And guess what? It doesn't matter anymore that you don't live next to there, that region, because now things are done hopefully a little differently and virtually. And um, maybe you, women now having different kind of access to getting enrolled in these trials will. But in my mind, unless you have a flow chart that allows for education, allows for feedback, and allows for some kind of question and answer based on what they learn, then, then the women are not going to get the care they need. When there are flow charts like these, Suzanne, are people using them with equity? Um, do people still apply their own filter on top of that flow chart that this woman may not like this or this this black man won't be appropriate for that or do the flow charts really break through individual biases and individual perceptions among providers i think those biases still exist i think that we're not quite there yet because i don't think we have these flow charts in place there's not a standardization so what i'm describing doesn't exist and i hear you though that and i agree with you that there's still going to continue to be biases that are going to prohibit this but i think that when we look at the potential of how to make the playing field equal and how to get rid of those disparities it's really about the same for all and i think you're absolutely right in saying well this guy's not going to understand this or this one's not going to care it's not up to us and it's really just under, understanding that our role is as a partner in care. I always would say that years ago, it was the, the godlike doctor that comes in with the message and talks down to the patient. It shouldn't be like that. It's about a partnership. And I think as doctors and education and generations are moving on, the next generation doesn't look the same way the generations before us looked. At, at being a doctor and it is a partnership and we need to understand that it's not our job to judge it's our job to collaborate so we have so many uh, on the line right now that are 
engaging in this topic from uh, clinical research organizations, from pharmaceutical companies. They're, they're designing and planning and executing studies around the world. What could they do differently? How can they help either their investigators or help engage differently with health systems to help support and, and drive this change and participate in a positive way rather than just perhaps setting unrealistic expectations on their investigators as if they're able to influence an entire health system? Well, I think that one of the things that we've kind of been talking about a little bit is how do we expand who does research and who gets referred to research? And the old paradigm is that the investigators who are who oftentimes are well-known um, get their referral patterns through a certain way. Departments are siloed within the hospital system. And each separate system is sort of private about the research they're doing. I mean, they're driven by grants and, and they're driven by um, promotions and tenures based on their research. So everyone's really private about the work they're doing. And I think it's time, and we've learned this from COVID, that we've got to change how we look at this and that we need to open up the research perhaps to more referral sources, which means to other people besides our department or maybe even our institution. And there are doctors in the community and in the diverse communities that maybe aren't being reached out to in the same way um, that we can consider opening things up in a different way and using technology, using social media, reaching out to people and not just physicians for referral sources. So in today's world, I might have an investigator. That investigator that I'm engaging with maybe is a part of a larger health system. Um, maybe that health system has multiple hospitals and inpatient and outpatient settings and in a tightly integrated EMR that's running across that entire enterprise. Um, but, you know, there's, there's an incentive structure that exists for those providers in that health system today and how they're practicing care in terms of RVUs or otherwise. Is that incentive structure and how care is being managed is it getting in the way? Are these pulling in opposite directions? Is there anything about that incentive structure for how providers are delivering care that, that we could leverage in a positive way here? Or should we focus on institutions that are finding more creative ways to incentivize and compensate their providers? Well, I think both. I mean, I think that we have to just shake up the system, the old system, which is the first system that you described, because what's happening now is we have the research physicians on one side and we have the clinical physicians on the other side. And those clinical physicians are really driven by RVUs. They're not driven by who they refer to research and nor does it help them because it takes more time and they don't have time. So how does that change? And with a well-integrated EMR, perhaps we can really investigate how that needs to be done differently. So a patient who fits into a research trial, there's a flag that comes up. Hey, looks like you're gonna fit into this trial that's being done by one of my colleagues. Is it okay if someone calls you or can I give you more information about it? That would be really interesting. Get that flag, get a printout about what the trial's about, 
look at it, say, you fit into this. Let's talk about this. Let's see if it works. So I think there's other ways that the old establishment can just tweak their protocol so the clinical physician isn't in, in a negative place when they start looking into helping their patients get into research because that RBU demand is really challenging. And for the other paradigm that you mentioned, some other institutions that maybe aren't as large and well-oiled machine-like, but willing to be more creative, I think that's a great place to start because everyone really, I believe, is in this to get the best for their patients and that patient care model and that research model is essential. For the audience who may not be familiar, can you share as a provider the plight of the RVU? What is the RVU and what does that mean to you as a provider? How does that restrict or limit, you know, where, where you reach? Well, I have PTSD from RVU. <laughs> um, <and laughs> so does that say anything? We'll pile it on with all the other causes of PTSD. <laughs> right. right. But, you know, I kind of think that should answer your question. It's not uh, just about the care for the patient and how well that patient's doing. It's about how many patients you see a day, how many tests, how much money are you making for the hospital? You can see I'm a little biased and a little jaded and a little unhappy when it comes to this because when I started, it wasn't quite like that. And so I was in the middle of transition from when charts were paper and we couldn't read anybody's handwriting, which wasn't so bad because you actually had to get on the phone and talk to each other, to the days now where RVUs and EMRs and nobody's communicating and all I could hear all day is clicking of buttons so you can check off everything you need to do so you do the right thing so you get paid what you deserve. And that's not, that's not conducive to patient care the way we used to know it. Um, that's not really right for anybody, in my opinion, and certainly not right for the patients. I can tell you the doctors aren't thrilled either. And I speak on behalf of all of them, even if I didn't ask every single one personally, because it is so challenging and so exhausting and um, really, really not, not putting the patient in the center of the story. And I believe that the future of medicine really needs to about, be about acknowledging that patient care more than anything. I, 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 um, I, for one, you know, certainly want to see the future where we have more inclusive and diverse investigators, but I also believe that we need to find ways to engage more providers in research who are simply willing to engage, be aware, and refer appropriate patients because that's where our patients are. That's the stakeholder that they trust. Robert uh, Lola on the on the line right now raises the, a really important question that I'm sure is on the mind of many. Some providers, many, may come back and indicate a hesitancy to refer because it seems either disruptive to patient care or that research seems disruptive to their workflow, but perhaps most importantly, that sometimes referring a patient into a trial can feel like a black box and that the treating physician who uh, was responsible for that patient either may perceive that they lose control or lose access to a lot of information about how that participation is going. What can we do better in the research community to help engage and be more inclusive with referring physicians to help overcome some of those barriers that stand in their way? 
You know, it's interesting because as I'm, I'm listening to this question and, and can really tell you, I've been that doctor who's looked at a patient said, you did what? And then what happened? You know, that's, that's not uncommon, but it's not even uncommon between clinicians anymore. You know, in terms of just the matter of fact communication between whether it's a referring doctor to a referring doctor or a referring physician to a clinical trial. It's all about communication and feedback. And that becomes one of the most important issues about continuity of care across the board. And you would think that with EMRs that are so extensive that the focus would be on communication of care. And I'm not really certain that was the purpose of EMR. And I think that we can sort of, yes, I'm, I'm a little jaded about this, but I think that, you know, when we look at the complexity of EMR and why many of them aren't helpful for physicians is because it's a lot about billing and less about communication. And so I, again, if we put the patient in the center of this story, communication needs to be is the first thing that needs to happen between two different providers for any one patient. And we have technology. We have the ability to very easily send a one pager. This is what happened to your patient today. Send, you know, it's not that hard. And it's time that we understand again, that we are not in silos. We can no longer be in silos and we need to be integrated. But a second part of that, wouldn't it be interesting to have physicians who are not usually part of research become part of the story? And if they become part of the story, then they get information just like the investigators on the trial. And one would think since so many of our study systems there, we're, we're great about having clean structured data, more and more effort it goes in today into automation and being able to automate and trigger different events. So much of what you're describing theoretically can be automated by the clinical research enterprise, being able to take data updates and information and be able to automate updates going out to different providers who have been supporting referrals. So I don't think this is that hard. And I actually don't think it's something that is impossible. It's about a mindset, really. And it's about the old structure of research versus clinical practice. The researchers were over here. The clinicians were over here. There was some set of privacy around that research paradigm for whatever reason. And I think a lot of it comes down to the competition for, for the research dollars and the grants and everything that goes into that. But I think, again, what we learned from COVID is the importance of collaboration and that the more we work together, the more successful we're all going to be and that we're going to be able to take care of our patients. So I think a little bit of this is just mindset. It's not that it's challenging. It is absolutely not. And it is about, you know, just the structure of it. COVID has raised so many spotlights this year, certainly on the power of collaborations and collaborations with diverse and unlikely stakeholders. It's exposed um, liabilities and weaknesses in the ecosystem around trust with many diverse patient populations. As you think about the, the intersection of this conversation and where we are in the pandemic and COVID-19 in general, 
what are kind of your takeaways? What are the what are the primary um, learnings from this 2020 experience? Are you thinking about as you're thinking about the future of clinical research and care coming together? I'd like to answer that just with um, a personal thought. When when COVID started, it was incredible to me to see the true desire amongst clinicians to um, collaborate because they were reaching out on Twitter. Could you imagine that we were, we were hearing about research and what was going on in Europe by Twitter and clinicians wanted to connect. They wanted to talk to each other. I have never seen anything such a swell of, of people desiring to communicate to integrate, to collaborate, to support each other. It was incredible. And I hope that's something that we learn, we learned moving forward. Um, I think one of the issues that became so clear is diversity. Diversity in clinical trials and the need for that to happen is beyond real. I mean, we need to address this moving forward. And I think this is when we talk about disparities in care and disparities in research. I, I, it's, um, you know, it's interesting. I think about the women in heart disease story and looking at African-American women who have a 25% higher death rate compared to white women and looking at the disparities in all of the research that's on women and heart disease is incredible. And that's across the board in, in all different disease states. So when we look about at moving forward, how do we tap into a population that's not getting the care they need and the research they need? And that's a lot about trust, a lot about trust. And how do we get the trust of these patients that need our care the most? And I think it's going into the communities and going into the practitioners that are in those communities. And that's not all the time in the mainstream that you described, although some institutions do have um, different practices in the community, but it's really looking at it in a different way. And it's really about reaching out to different healthcare providers to become part of the research paradigm in maybe a different way than they haven't been before. So thoughtful. I, um, you know, this 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 topic around diversity. You know, the uh, it's it's certainly. I, I think twenty twenty has really shown so many spotlights on challenges that we know have been there for years, and hopefully we're seeing sustaining interest and sustaining commitment to these challenges because they're not quick fixes. These aren't topics that we can just write a check in 2020, check the box and move on, but really require some long-term commitment to regain and restore trust. But I know as I think about these areas, and, and I'm, I'm wondering if this is something that you've seen um, from your experiences uh, focused on gender and how it applies to race, ethnicity, these gaps in outcomes that you're describing, they can't just be explained by, um, by access issues. These differences in mortality for, for Black women with breast cancer or, or other indications can't just be about access. Are there underlying differences that we're missing because we just haven't been including the right patients in our studies? Do we need to 
empower our studies in the future to be able to um, look at race and ethnic and gender differences for outcomes? Let me just tell you this. I mean, this is what's so shocking. And I'm just going to focus on the women and heart disease issue right now because that'll explain the story. How do we make conclusions about how to treat women when there is no research on women? And so when we look at the trials, I mean, 34% of the clinical trials are about women and only 31% of those trials actually base their outcomes and they talk about women specifically. So we're not teasing through the data and saying, this is what happens to women. The women are not part of these trials. One of the most shocking things that happened, and this was about a decade ago, there are about 120 studies, only of 78 of them were about devices that were approved by the FDA. 28% of those trials did not even provide gender. And when you looked in the minute details, I mean, maybe 8% were African-American women or less than that. So if you don't study the population you're trying to address, you just don't get the answers. And it's really that simple. So no, it's not just about, you know, disparities. We don't even have the research out there. So that's the problem. You know, just to uh, double click uh, on this topic for for a bit, uh, Phyllis Greenberger uh, has a question and an observation, really. And for those of you that don't know Phyllis, you should. She's obviously been around this uh, field around inclusion of women in research for a very long time. Um, and Phyllis shares the observation that the problem is still physician education and what the principal investigator looks like and their methods of outreach Suzanne, do you have uh, comments or reflections based on uh, what Phyllis was sharing? I completely agree with her. You know, and I think that our methods need to change. And I'm going to go back to this idea of partnership. When you talk to a patient and they fit into a trial and someone from the research team comes and says, hey, you should be in this trial. And this is a trial signed here. It's not going to work out. But if someone sits there and explains and educates the patient, and says to the patient, do you know what's amazing? We don't have an answer to this question yet. And you can help us find the answer. It's just like voting. Why are we going to go to vote unless we have an impact on the change, unless we are part of the story? And unless we actually talk to people and educate them and not talk at them and to them, we're not going to get people's trust. And it takes a little more time and effort and it actually requires empathy and really to understand where they're coming from and maybe the issues surrounding why it would be hard for them to join a trial. You know, I, I think of some of the trials um, uh, with women who were single moms, three kids, two jobs. Hey, join a clinical trial, really? Like, really? How are you gonna do that? Um, I, and I think that for women, it's been um, a multifactorial issue of why they haven't joined trials. And a lot of it is about time and it's lack of understanding of what is it going to mean for me to enter your trial? What is that? Who cares? Is that for you? And when you go to someone and you say, sign here, you fit in, it becomes about the person who's running the trial and not about the patient sitting in front of them. So much of this audience is um, is is increasingly thoughtful and aware of and, and more consistently 
including the voice of the patient and how they're planning and designing their studies. So much of this audience today are including patient input and patient voice in their study design process. But I think the call, as you're pointing out in 2020, may be to make sure that those voices are representative of the types of patients that you want to see enrolled in your trial. If your patient insights are coming from just one demographic, then that's the way your insights are going to guide your decisions around study design and just how inclusive uh, the trial may ultimately be. So I think you're bringing up some great points that people can make actionable as they're thinking about patient insights and how they're planning their studies. Absolutely. We have a question from the fabulous Dina Bernstein, and I know Dina is very active in working with different health systems right now in trying to engage and include them in the research process. Dina's question goes back to what we were talking about earlier with RVUs, and despite their causing so much pain, stress, and anxiety for many providers, is there a way that we could conceive using RVUs in a, as a positive? Is there Are there ways to add RVUs that could support research incentives for physicians to either participate in research or to give them the capacity to have conversations with their patients about research participation? Is that a path worth folks considering? So I think that what you have to understand a little bit is the clinical patient time, which is about eight minutes. And in RVU land, um, and you think about how many patients per hour that means needs to be seen, I I don't believe where we are right now that it, it's possible. I think RVUs needs to change, by the way. I think our system needs to really have a different look at how providers are looked at and valued, and I don't know if RVUs is the best way to handle it. But when you have a conversation about research, I would believe that it gets added on to the conversation and not takes up the clinical time. And that doesn't seem to be how things are structured right now. You're not going to say, okay, now we have two minutes to talk about you and I'm going to take six minutes and talk about my research. So I think that the way things are, they need to be changed. It would be an interesting model but I'm not sure at this point if it's a model that could actually be executed. A related question from the audience. Is there any place for financial incentives to help here in particular ways for incentives to help in uh, driving and more engagement with diverse and representative patients or are financial incentives always going to be uh, in a black box and, and for fear of inducement or other misbehaviors? I don't know if financial incentives are necessary all the time. Maybe sometimes. I mean, there's certain issues and transportation and, and those sort of things, I think, that are practical. But I don't think a financial incentive actually is a good idea for what you just mentioned. But I do think a lot of this does come down to trust and how we really recruit our patients. And the way that we've been recruiting our patients right now in the silos of academic institutions through their departments is not the best way to do it. 
a person is going to listen to a person they trust, their physician, their healthcare provider that knows them. And that perhaps is going out into the community or out into areas that are not usually tapped into. Um, and it's about time and, and really conversation, communication, empathy, and conversation in a really embracing patients in a different way, not just as subjects. We have about one minute left, and in the spirit of a speed round, Suzanne, um, what's what's one quick takeaway that our audience can go home with? What's something that they can go back and think about changing today that can help to embody some of the observations you've shared and help put them on a path to being an agent of positive change? I think we're at a stage where inclusivity is the most important piece of moving forward, whether it's in diversity, you know, I talk about women, but it's really about reaching out to those healthcare providers and physicians in a way that makes inclusivity easy and makes communication between the researchers and the provider easier. I think the more that there is collaboration, the better off we are. And if there has, if there hasn't been shown to be a better time and a more important time about the importance of collaboration, it's now. And we've got to jump on board and figure out how to make things easier for everyone to really be on the same page, playing in the same sandbox together and uh, to push the needle. It's time we do that in a bigger way. That is a fabulous way to wrap up our time together. Suzanne, thank you so much for sharing some of your journey, your experience with us. Valerie, it's good to see you and I'm pleased to turn things back over. Well, thank you both so much. And I think what this session has really taught us is the importance of having more of the physician perspective. Um, so Dr. Suzanne Steinbaum, thank you so much. It was a great honor to have you as part of Craig. I know it's your first time joining us and Craig, as always, thank you for doing such a brilliant job moderating we hope you enjoyed the podcast. For more information about the Craco Conference, our editorials, podcasts, and webinars, please visit cracoevent.com. Thank you.